Not only do we invite you, Lord Jesus, into this place and to take a firmer position in our hearts, Lord, but we thank you that you've invited yourself. You've come here, Lord. You have told us so clearly that wherever two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are in our midst. And we thank you for your presence, and we pray that your presence would be manifest now in the ministry of your word. And Father, we pray that the Word of God would run and have good success all throughout Santa Cruz County in every single place where the Word of God is believed and is taught and the name of Jesus is being lifted up as the Son of God and as God the Son. We pray that you would anoint those words and cause your kingdom to grow and be strengthened this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God bless you this morning. So good to see you here. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 14 this morning. If you have a bulletin, you have notes that you can use to refer to later and also to follow along. But before we get into the text, I want to just uh, quickly uh, talk to you men. Tuesday night, even though we've kind of been going on in our men's fellowship on Tuesday nights, This Tuesday night actually is the start of the study on authentic Christianity. So it would be a great time to come on in and and join the study. And uh, we'll be studying through authentic Christianity, the passages in 2 Corinthians 2 through 6, and we'll be relying heavily upon that great commentary, authentic Christianity, uh, by Pastor Ray Stedman, who is now in heaven, but... Uh, wrote that as sort of his uh, his great greatest work, really, uh, as a commentator. So that's coming up Tuesday night. You can get a copy of Authentic Christianity in the bookstore, and I believe there are probably, Tony, maybe you can help me with this, there are probably copies of the study guides or outlines somewhere. Okay. Uh, you can see Tony Dettel or Larry back in the sound booth. They'll get you what you need. But come on out and join us, guys. Even if you haven't been involved in the past, we'd love to have you out. It's going to be a great time, okay? Revelation chapter 14. Chronologically, this fits right into the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years prior to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. It's the halfway point. Now, there are purposes for this 70th week of Daniel, purposes for the tribulation period that I think are important to understand. Since the time frame is primarily focused on Israel, or in many ways is focused on Israel, according to Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, a major purpose for the seven years is for God to deal with his people, the Jews, to bring them into faith into Messiah Jesus. Secondly, it's also the time when God is going to judge the kingdoms of men. Remember that vision or that dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 of Daniel? Well, there you saw this great image that represented the kingdoms of men. And then there was a stone that had been cut out without hands. And it smote that image on its feet and shattered it to pieces. And it became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone is Jesus Christ. And the kingdom that is brought by him when he comes again. And so the purpose of the tribulation is also for God to judge the kingdoms of men in order to bring in his kingdom. Thirdly, 
During this time, many, many more will be saved. But they'll have to come the hard way. They'll have to come, for the most part, through martyrdom. Many will be saved during this time, so it's the last harvest of souls prior to the second coming of Christ. And then, fourthly, the world desperately needs to be cleansed from sin in order to prepare for the coming golden age when Jesus is king. King Jesus is going to be on his throne. But he's not going to rule and reign over a dirty planet. Not just ecologically or geographically or topographically, but a dirty planet as far as sin is concerned. He's going to rule and reign over a planet that's been cleansed. And so the tribulation period does just that. The outline of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 19, we've talked about it before. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. But prior to the tribulation period, prior to the seven years, at some point, Jesus is going to come for his church. He comes for the church in the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. He comes with the church in his physical second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. First he comes for the church, that could happen at any time. Then he comes back with his church at the end of the seven years, and those who are with him will join him in his return to the earth. So we come to chapter 14. This is in the middle of all of these events in chapters uh, 6 through 19. It's in the middle of the tribulation period. And chapter 14 deals with two basic concepts. One, the 144,000, we see them again. We last saw them in chapter 7. And then the pronouncements of six different angels that are being made during this time. So let's read the text, verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. Then I looked. John is writing. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So the first thing that John sees in this section, this passage, is he sees a lamb standing out Mount Zion. Which lamb was that? Well, it's none other than the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John said of him, John the Baptist, when he saw him there at the Jordan River. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is that same lamb, not in his physical earthly body, but in his glorified new body, his exalted resurrection body. That's the lamb that John sees. And he shows up as the lamb all throughout the book of Revelation. And many times in chapter 7, which includes the story of the 144,000, the first time we see them. 
Where's the lamb standing? He's standing on Mount Zion. Now, there are only two options here. This is either referring to Mount Zion, like in Israel, where Jerusalem is and where the temple will be rebuilt, or it's referring to the Mount Zion in heaven. It's my view that this is referring to the Mount Zion in heaven because of verses 3, 4, and 5. Because the 144,000 that are with Jesus there on this Mount Zion are singing a new song before the throne. Notice that in verse 3. The living creatures are there. The 24 elders are there. They're singing a song in heaven, so that must refer then to the Mount Zion that is in heaven. Now, who are these 144,000? They're Jews. That was clear back in chapter 7. They are sealed by God. That is also clear from our text and also back in chapter 7. And that sealing, by the way, is a result of them having received the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also believed, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Faith in Christ brings the sealing of the Holy Spirit. God marks us as his own. He puts his identifying characteristic of himself, the Holy Spirit. He puts that on us and puts him within us. And now we are known by God and by everyone else as having belonged to him and as those who belong to him in the present and in the future. So these 144,000 were sealed by God. They responded to the gospel. Now, in chapter 7, which we won't go back to, if you reread the chapter, you'll see that the aftermath or the result of the sealing of these 144,000 Jews is a massive number of conversions to Christ. And the number is so great that they can't be numbered out of every kindred and tongue and people and tribe. So during the tribulation period, God anoints or seals 144,000 Jews. They become his witnesses. The result of their ministry on the earth is a massive number of conversions. Now we've got 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams preaching the gospel with great power and vigor all throughout the world. And the result is incredible. That's what's going on. In chapter 7, and this is the same group, but now they're in heaven. Standing on Mount Zion with Jesus. And you have in your notes a cross-reference to Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Let me read to you that passage referring to the heavenly Mount Zion. The writer to the Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The writer is talking about the position that believers in Christ have. We have come uh, not to the old Mount Sinai, which was the mountain of the law and the mountain of judgment and the mountain of wrath and the mount of danger, but we've come to this new mount, Mount Zion. It's in heaven, and it's a place where innumerable numbers of angels 
exists. It's where the living God is. It's where he dwells at the present time. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's where the church of the firstborn are registered. It's where the spirits of all just men throughout all time are being uh, on display as those who have been perfected. And Jesus is there, of course, as the mediator of the new covenant. I can't wait to go to the heavenly Mount Zion. But we're already there, according to the language of Hebrews 12. In God's mind and in God's heart, we're already there. This is the mountain we've come to. This is the place we live at. Very similar to the idea that Paul gives to us in Ephesians, the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have every spiritual blessing. All of those spiritual blessings are located in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and they belong to us. They are ours. So, as I shared last Wednesday night down in Monterey, we are spiritual trillionaires. We have so much. God is so good. And really it's taking a lifetime and all of eternity to discover the wealth that God has given to us. But it's already ours. Now the purpose of these 144,000 was to live for Jesus for a short time during the tribulation period and then be taken to heaven. Because now they're in heaven. What we're not told is how they got to heaven. We're not told if they were killed And we're not told whether or not they were caught up into heaven like Elijah and Enoch were. It's possible that they were just assumed into heaven, sort of rapture-like. But it's also possible that they were martyred, but the text just doesn't tell us. But their purpose, short-time purpose, to live for Jesus and to follow him and bear witness to him during this time. Notice how they're identified. Jesus' father's name is written on their foreheads. It's all the identification they need. His father's name is written on their foreheads. Isn't that interesting? One commentator pointed out that the name Episcopalian isn't on their forehead, or Baptist, or Presbyterian, or Calvary Chapelite, or whatever other affiliation you might name. The only name that matters in heaven is the name of the Father written on the name of these, the foreheads of these 144,000. Wouldn't to God it would be like that today? that we could just identify with one another in the body of Christ because of our mutual faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for the Father. And so John, as he's there in heaven, he sees this awesome scene and he hears this voice from heaven. It wasn't the voice of many waters. It wasn't the voice of loud thunder, but it was like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And he also heard the sound of harpists playing their harps there. Now, how do you get all those sounds together and make it so that it's not popping your eardrums, I'm not quite sure. I'm sure John, during these times of vision, had capacity for that experience. And somehow you have the sound like the sound of many waters, like oceans roaring and waves crashing against the sand, and uh, sounds like uh, thunder going on, and at the same time the sound of harpists. And it all somehow comes together into this beautiful harmonious wave of, of heavenly music. And, and the Lord knows how to do that. Whatever it sounded like and however it all worked together, it was an awesome experience. John wanted to write it down and tell us about it. 
And they were singing a new song. And it's a beautiful song, but it's only a song that they can learn. And it's said to be a new song. So these 144,000 had their own special worship for God. You know, you and I can have our own special worship for God too. In fact, we should. The, the height of the Christian, in terms of his expression, is the worship of God. There's nothing that is greater than the capacity that we have been given to worship God, to know who he is, to express to him who he is, and to just relate to him as he is. That's the worship of God. And these had their own special song. We can have our own private, personal worship of God as well, and we need to. My effectiveness in the community is based upon my personal, private worship of God in many ways, and so it is with you. If you don't have a quiet time, get one. Because it's real important to spend time with the Lord and learn to worship Him. They weren't defiled with women, verse 4 tells us. Uh, that means that they were unmarried. They were virgins. They were unmarried. And there, of course, are advantages. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 to the life of singleness. Uh, the advantage is that uh, you're free with your time and your schedule and your focus. And those who choose a life of singleness have made a good choice if it's for the kingdom of God. Uh, those that are married, and that would be most of us, then there is great fruit that can be borne through the loving married relationship between husband and wife as well. Paul's not trying to demean marriage, but he's saying in 1 Corinthians 7 that in the light of the present distress, it's better, he thinks, and he's giving us his opinion, that human beings remain as he is at that time. And he was single. So there are advantages to singleness. These 144,000 are single. They're not unmarried. They are completely able to devote 24-7 to the master that they are following and loving. And so very fruitful, obviously, as a result. We also learn that they were pure. And that would be not defiled, that idea of not being defiled. They were pure. The idea of being pure. When, when we use that phrase, you know, we need to be pure as believers, what do we usually think about? What are we usually, you know, having in our minds as the concept? Usually we're thinking about abstaining from evil, polluting things. And of course, it includes that. The idea of purity includes the idea of staying away from things that will defile and pollute us. And boy, is that a challenge in these days in which we live, where there are visual and auditory images everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And so it's tough. It's a real battle. It's a daily war for all of us. But the better idea, the more complete idea of purity, is that it is a complete singleness and focus. That's what purity really is all about. When you read the Sermon on the Mount and you come to the very first section of it, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the peacemakers, and then you have it, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the word there is katharos. It means, it, it comes from the same kind of an idea of cleansing and uh, you know, to be focused, to be single. Blessed are those who are cleansed, who are focused, and are single in heart. 
It's, it's one thing to say, okay, I want to live my life and be free from sin. And I don't want this stuff to defile me. It's another thing to say, I want my life to be wholly and completely focused on one thing, and that is to know Christ and to be found in Him and to abide in Him and to bear the fruit that He wants to bear in my life. See, if you just focus on staying away from sin and you don't focus on becoming who you are and what God wants you to be, then it's only half purity. It's only half of the equation. It's only part of it. And I think that many times we miss it on this point and we start focusing more on what we don't do anymore instead of on what we ought to be and what we can become in the Lord from now on. That's the focus. That's what it means to be pure. All of my resources, my mind, my, my soul, my heart, my thoughts, all of them are gathered up. Everything that I am is gathered up into this one single-hearted direction of being with my Master and loving Him and following Him and serving Him. And so in that sense, those who do that, they don't have any part of their life that is secular. There's no part of life that is secular with a person who's living like that. They go to work, it's a spiritual experience for them because they're serving the Master. They are out in the public square, it's not a secular activity at all. It's a religious, spiritual experience for them because they're loving and serving the Lord Jesus. They can go on vacation and be worshiping and their vacation becomes worship and service and you know, a spiritual experience with the Lord. Everything, all of life. My money becomes a spiritual service of worship. My time becomes a spiritual service of worship. The spiritual gifts that God has given me becomes a spiritual service of worship. It is all pointed in the same direction. And that's the kind of life that we should be striving toward. What did Jesus say? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So that's the focus. So being pure in heart means to gather up everything in that direction. And that's what these 144,000 were like. And I love the fact that it tells us here in the text, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. On earth, they had made their choice to be his disciple. Right? And what does it cost to follow the Lord as his disciple? If anyone desires to follow after me, Matthew 16, 24, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what they had done on earth. Now in heaven, they're continuing to follow the Lord wherever he goes. They were doing it on earth, they're going to be doing it in heaven. Now here's another side of that coin. He was always with them on earth, and so he's always with them in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Again, people that talk about heaven and use concepts that make heaven seem like a boring place, shame on them. Not a boring place. Following the Lamb wherever He goes, hanging out with Jesus for all eternity, just checking out what He's up to, what He's doing, the things that He's going to be involved with, it's just going to be wonderful just to watch him. And we love spectator sports, so it's going to be wonderful to just watch him <laughs> in heaven do his thing, among many other things that we get to do. Notice also that they were uh, 
without fault before the throne of God, verse 5. Meaning that they were blameless by God's grace, without fault by God's grace, without blame, faultless before God, by God's grace. He said, boy, I'd like to be without fault before God, by God's grace. Guess what? If you are in Christ, you are. If you are in Christ, you are without fault, and you are blameless by God's grace. 1 Corinthians 1.8, he'll confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.21 and 22, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And then Jude writes, to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Faultless, blameless, irreproachable, holy in his sight. These are the things that have been given to us through Jesus Christ. You like that? I'm holy in Christ. Can you say that? I'm holy in Christ. I am blameless in Christ. I am faultless in Christ. Oh, it's so important to not only be able to say that, but to believe it. Changes my whole day. Just know that everything is okay between God and me by the grace of God. I don't want to take advantage of that and abuse it. But I want to live up to it. And that's the message of the New Testament. Live up to it. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Okay, now we come to some of the pronunciations of these angels. The first in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. So here's an angel that is flying in the midst of heaven. So he's visible and he's able to be seen by those that are on the earth. And he's preaching this everlasting gospel. Now some have tried to make this everlasting gospel different than the gospel that we believe in. Like it's some special gospel that is reserved for the tribulation period, different from the gospel of Jesus Christ that is preached now during the church age. Somehow, I think not. I don't think the gospel changes. In fact, Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, if we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel to you other than what we've preached, let him be accursed of God. So I don't think it's a different gospel. But let's just understand this as well, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached ever since Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ever since he was here with us. That same gospel, of course, we know what that is. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. We know what the gospel is. But let's not make the mistake and think that prior to Christ's coming, people were saved differently and by different means than they are now. Because that's not true either. Anyone 
who has ever been saved has always been saved the same way. And that way that anybody who has ever been saved can be saved or has been saved is by grace through faith. Now the difference is, those that were saved prior to the physical coming of Christ in his incarnation, those that were saved prior to the incarnation of Christ, they were saved in anticipation of his coming, and we're saved in retrospect by looking back on what he has accomplished on the fact that he's already come. But the same idea is we're saved by grace through faith. Genesis 15.6 tells us the Old Testament model for salvation. It's, it's Abraham. Abraham, look up at the sky and see if the, the number of the stars that are in the sky, see if you can count them. That's how many your descendants are going to be, the Lord told Abraham. Genesis 15.6 says Abraham believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was saved by grace through faith, just believing the promise of God, that what God would do. And he becomes the model of every single person who would ever believe, Jew or Gentile. Because he believed that message before he was circumcised, which means he believed that message before he was a Jew. And when he was circumcised, he simply ratified externally what he had already believed internally. And so he continued in faith as a Jew, believing the same way he had as a Gentile. So he's the pattern, he's the model for all of those that would believe throughout every age. Paul points that out in Romans 4. If you read that whole chapter, you can see from Romans 4 that doctrine. So it's the everlasting gospel. And by the way, this gospel is preached to those that dwell on earth. To whom? To every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue, and to every people, saying it loudly enough so everybody can hear it. Everyone hears it. Everyone hears it. This is the fulfillment, and you can put this in your notes or you can jot it down in your margin of your Bible, this is the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 14. Matthew 24, 14, the Olivet Discourse, the uh, little apocalypse of Jesus, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Of course, the 144,000 will, will preach the message, and so it will get out everywhere. Those that come to Christ during the tribulation period will preach the message. It will get out everywhere through them. And then this angel will preach the message, and it gets out everywhere through this angel. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, Jesus said, and then the end shall come. So, just to kind of put it in focus here it is not dependent upon the church in this present age to preach the gospel to every creature for Jesus Christ to return some have made that mistake they've said no Jesus Christ we the church is going to have to preach the gospel to every creature that's our responsibility and when we're finished Jesus Christ will come back and get the church there are a lot of problems with that view. 
One is that it destroys the imminency of the return of Christ in the rapture. And Jesus said to expect him at any time. No one knows the day or the hour. But if certain things have to happen, no matter what that thing is, before Jesus can return for his church, then imminency is no longer a doctrine. So it destroys the imminency of the uh, return of Jesus Christ, and then it also messes up this concept here in Revelation where it's clear that this is when it happens. This is when the gospel of the kingdom is preached. Now, again, we're not going to use this as an excuse to just chill and, you know, watch football all the time. You know, and just spend all of our time on ourselves. If the church becomes lazy because of this, the church is misinterpreting the idea. Jesus said, Watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape these things which are coming upon the earth and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus again and again talked about watching, about keeping our lamp burning, about having oil in our lamps, being focused, being ready, being ready for the the coming of Jesus Christ back for us, for the church. John talks about it in 1 John chapter 2. Abide in Him that when He appears we'll have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Being busy at His bidding, being busy about his business, occupy until I come. And so Jesus again and again and again is reaffirming the importance of the church staying busy at the Great Commission, which is to preach the gospel and make disciples in all the world. So just because this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to everyone during the tribulation period doesn't mean that we abrogate our responsibility in this life and in this age. We go for it with all that we can and with all that we are. Does that make sense? Okay, so a little bit of uh, balance, hopefully, to the idea. The idea here, again, as the angel proclaims, fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. This is a call to repentance. It's a warning of judgment. During uh, this time, things are very harsh, and it needs to be very direct. Much like John the Baptist, remember the first word that he preached? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But let's not forget that the Lord Jesus, when he started his ministry, after he was baptized and the Spirit came upon him, the first words of Jesus' ministry were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the necessity of repentance and turning around the mind and focusing on the Lord. Verse 8, here's another angel. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Is fallen, is fallen, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Now, chapters 17 and 18 of the Revelation go into great detail about Babylon, the city, and Babylon, the religious system, and will expound more fully there. But what this is saying is that the fall of Babylon is going to take place. And the reason it's written in the present tense is this is a common technique used by prophetic writers. It's called the use of the prophetic present tense. It's something that's going to happen in the future, but the present tense is used to describe in the present things that are going to happen later. All you have to do is read prophecies and you'll see that Isaiah uses this, 
Ezekiel uses this. All of the prophets use this technique or this uh, approach to prophecy, the prophetic present. But basically, this pronouncement says it's a done deal. Babylon's going down. That great city, the, the city that the nations have trusted in, the system that the nations have trusted in, it's going down. Why? Because all of the nations drank of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon, material Babylon, commercial Babylon, religious Babylon, Babylon is intoxicating and has intoxicated the nations, so it's going to be judged by God. The next angel follows in verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself also shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He should be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So here we have, again, this clear warning. Do not receive the mark of the beast. Do not worship his image. It's a clear warning. What this does, as we see this here, is we understand now, because of this warning of this third angel, that it's very clear in the minds of people that are living on the earth during that time. No one is going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. No one is going to accidentally, inadvertently, worship the image of the beast. Everyone will know that what they do when they take the mark of the beast is a capital offense against their own souls. They'll know that. They'll know that the penalty is to spend eternity in judgment, in hell, separated from God, if they take this mark. God is going to give them ample warning, opportunity to repent, the goodness of God giving them a merciful chance to repent. So this is a known thing. In our rap last week, it was brought out by Barry, and it was such a great point, that this mark of the beast can be connected to the only known unforgivable sin that we are aware of in the Scriptures. Jesus, when he was accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, answered his critics by saying, if Satan casts out Satan, how can his kingdom stand? And then he said, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Every kind of sin, every kind of blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy which is against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? To answer the question, we have to ask another question. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? John 16 tells us that he convinces the world of their sinfulness. 
He convinces the world of what righteousness is, and he convinces the world of the coming judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. All of which is intended to lead a person to Jesus Christ, to show an individual their need for a Savior. You see, we're naturally and normally clueless. We're born dead in trespasses and sins. We don't know our need for a Savior naturally unless the Holy Spirit shows us. So the Holy Spirit is working, seeking to woo and draw individuals to Jesus Christ. That's His ministry. But if somebody says, no, I don't want it, and resists every effort of the Holy Spirit to lead them to Christ, eventually they'll get to a place where they finally and totally reject Jesus Christ. And that final and total rejection of Jesus Christ is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now many people commit that sin when they die, because somehow they've been able to resist the gospel message their whole lives. Others, apparently, from John chapter 12 are able to commit it in this life. They actually come to a place where their heart becomes so reprobate and so twisted in another direction that they make a final decision. I will never, ever consider faith in Jesus Christ. I reject Him out of hand and completely and totally. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the ultimate and final rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, tie that in with this, this mark of the beast and worship of the image of the beast. That's what's going on. Here are individuals living on the earth during the tribulation period that have heard the everlasting gospel preached by the angel in midheaven. They have heard the witness of the 144,000. They've seen the witness of the two prophets in Revelation 11. They've had all of this opportunity to respond to the gospel. And they have said, no, 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 no. And then an opportunity to worship the image of the beast comes along and they say, yes. Or an opportunity to receive the mark and buy into his whole system. And they say yes. And thus they have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They will never, ever have an opportunity again to be saved. As it says in our text, they have lost their opportunity because they have rejected the ongoing efforts of God himself to bring them into salvation. It's a very, very sober reality. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, listen, you're going to have an opportunity. Please consider it an opportunity. You're going to have an opportunity this morning to actually receive the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him as your Savior and Lord. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. Because now is the salvation uh, day and now is the acceptable time. Now, there's another voice from heaven in verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So this is a pronouncement. The martyrs of the great tribulation are blessed. And notice it says that those who die in the Lord from now on, in other words, from this point, the midpoint of the tribulation period, to the end of the tribulation period, those who die in the Lord, and many, of course, will die because they will not receive the mark of the beast. They'll die at the hand of the Antichrist. Those who die in the Lord from then on will be blessed. And they'll have, finally, rest from their labors. 
So it just points out the fact that believers during the last half of the tribulation period will suffer greatly, and it will be a very, very hard road for them. And for most of these believers during the last half of the tribulation period, their rest will come through martyrdom. That's how they'll come to rest. Verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle, a sickle, of course, being an instrument for threshing wheat. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now again, this one with the golden crown on his head and the one who has this sharp sickle in his hand is none other than the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And he's got a a sickle in his hand. Now he's going to reach down into the earth and he's going to reap. What kind of reaping is this? This is not a reaping of judgment. This is a reaping of souls. This is the final harvest of souls prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And many, many will be brought in as a result of that harvest. It has to do with the reaping of the earth and salvation. The Son of Man is the reaper here, and he's our Savior. When he comes physically on his white horse, Revelation 19, that's when it's judgment. But until that time, it's still reaping. Reaping the souls of those living on the earth in salvation. And it's going to be a tremendous harvest, and... I don't know, when I read the book of Revelation and I consider the numbers involved, the numbers of people that will come to Christ during this seven-year period of time, a great number which no man could number, which is interesting because in chapter 16 in a couple weeks, we'll see that there's a multitude from the east numbering 200 million. They could be numbered. So this is a number that evidently is far greater than the 200 million. Because it can't be numbered. Of every people, kindred, tongue, and tribe all over the world, a great harvest of souls. God's final attempts to reach man on the earth, and he will reach many. Praise the Lord for that. He's reaching many today. I hope you realize that. Sometimes it feels like we're all alone. But we ain't. You know, let's not be guilty of the Elijah syndrome. They've torn down your altars. They've, you know, persecuted your prophets. I alone am left. And they seek my life to destroy it. Little did Elijah know that there were 7,000 men in Israel who had not bowed their knees to Baal. There were 7,000. He wasn't even aware of them. I wonder how many millions there are, and we're not even aware of them. And the Lord is doing a great work. More people are coming to Christ today, at this time in history, than ever before in all of human history. 
More Muslims are coming to Christ right now than at any time since the beginning of Islam. And it's in staggering and increasing numbers. So we're part of something really great. We're part of what the book of Revelation calls the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of the Open Door. I've set before you an open door that no one can shut, Jesus said to the Church of Philadelphia. Oh, boy, Lord, just lead us into those opportunities. Make us soul winners. He who wins souls is wise. Make us soul winners. Amen? Now, this next angel, verse 17, he also will reap. He's not the Son of God, of course. He's an angel, a created being. And his reaping will be a reaping of judgment, as we'll see. Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are ready. Her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. And blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So this is a reaping of judgment. The clusters and the vine of the earth were ready, fully ripe for judgment. Decisions had been made. Rejection of Christ was complete. The mark of the beast had been received. Worship of the image of the beast had been engaged in. And now the angel thrusts in his sickle for judgment. And apparently this is referring to the very last section of the book of Revelation, the war of Armageddon, which leads to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the war was so intense and the bloodshed so great that the description is that blood came out of this wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. A furlong, about an eighth of a mile, which means the site of this carnage extended approximately 180 miles. And it's not saying that the blood actually flowed to the height of the horse's bridles. That would be impossible, you know, it would seem, except the Lord could do anything. But it's talking about the, bl- the horse's hoofs splattering through the blood and the blood splattering up to their bridles. And this kind of carnage was going on for a great distance all throughout that area, which would be descriptive of the War of Armageddon that we'll see later in the text. Now, the thing to note here, as we look at these last two reapings, first, there was a reaping for souls, salvation, and then there was a reaping of judgment. Did you catch that? First, there was a reaping of souls, then there was a reaping of judgment. Why is that? Because the Bible says that judgment is God's strange work, his very strange work. Mercy is his preferred work. So he extends mercy, and those that don't want it, by their own choice, have accepted the only alternative there is, judgment. But first mercy, then judgment. First opportunity, then rejection. And that's the way that works. 
So there are the pronouncements of the six angels. It's quite a chapter. And it ends with this mixture of grace and truth. Which, of course, is what Jesus is all about. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us in your word. And what do we do with all of this, Lord Jesus? What do we do with this information? We recognize how right you are and how righteous and true and holy are all of your judgments. But we also recognize how merciful you are, how merciful and gracious you are in all of your ways. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your blood was shed so that ours didn't have to be. Your life was given so that ours could be spared. Your love was poured out so we wouldn't have to experience wrath. You deliver us from the wrath to come. That's what your word says. And you've not appointed us under wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for all of these things, Lord. And we do pray that in these last days, in these days leading up to your coming for the church, that you would enable us to be a pure, completely sanctified bride, holy and set apart to you. Not messing around with the world and the system of the world, but instead being completely surrendered to the work of your Spirit in our lives. Help us, Lord, and enable us to become those that would be wise winners of souls. Jesus, you called your disciples. You said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So may we follow you, Lord. And you will make us fishers of men. Thank you, Lord, for it. And as we are praying, I just want to just say just a, a quick word. To those of you who are with us this morning that would like to receive Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior and as your Lord, this is your opportunity. You can bow your knee to Jesus this morning and you can say, I believe in you. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead for me. I accept you into my life. I want to become your child. I want to become a follower of yours. Best life possible. Anybody here this morning? ready to receive Jesus Christ, right where you're seated, if you would just stand. I'll have a word of prayer with you, and then we're going to go right into the communion uh, as we celebrate the Lord's table together. Anybody this morning, just stand right where you're seated. You're wanting to receive Jesus this morning. Greatest offer that could ever be made to a human being. Jesus said, all those who come to me I will never cast them out. He'll accept you, not reject you. He'll allow you in, and he'll accept you, and he'll forgive you of all your sins. Anyone this morning? God bless you. Amen. Bless you. Pray this prayer. Let's all pray this together. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for us. And thank you for rising from the dead. And thank you for the life that you've given, that we might have life. 
receive you again by faith into our hearts as your word says that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. We acknowledge your great salvation in Jesus' name.